Tegan, good to see you. Chris, you're back at your post. I am back at my post. We had an excellent time. Really, really, really interesting and terrific trip. Tell us all where you went, Chris. So first of all, that's the first question. We had left that a little bit blank. We went to a place that I had not been since I was 14, the Black Hills of South Dakota. I had really strong memories. I've talked about wanting to go back there for several years, but I wasn't sure. Maybe those 14-year-old memories were built up in my mind of how beautiful it was and all of that. But we pulled the trigger, and I can state that the memories were accurate, and the whole area might have been even better than I remembered. Absolutely beautiful. And it really made me think and feel some things that were unexpected that I didn't anticipate going out there. Well, first of all, I can attest to the fact that everything I liked at age 14, I still like today. So I'm not surprised by that. Baseball, French fries, ice cream. Pretty much all there is, right? Yes. (laughs) In any event, what were the things that surprised you? First of all, it reinforced, and I know you feel the same way, just how ridiculously beautiful the country is. Needles Highway, Devil's Tower. It's all so beautiful. And it reinforced how, and this might be the Midwesterner in me, as opposed to the East Coaster native, New England native in you, you really have to drive to see America. I mean, for better or worse, but the country is so vast that if all we do is fly, and we did have to fly out there, but once you get out there, there's so much in between normal places that we all fly to. And it's not just you know on the interstates, but getting off the interstates. They're just small highways and it's super beautiful. It's always been my feeling that if you see a national park sign somewhere, you should go because there's a reason it's a national park. It's amazing. 100%. It's like a flashing neon sign, great beauty and experience here. Come on in. The U.S. Park Service is like the best of America. They do such a spectacular job. And I've got one particular example in mind. So the other thing that I ended up feeling that I didn't expect, I kind of, I hoped and expected I would feel the way I did about the great beauty. What I didn't expect was how I was going to feel so adamant about the concept of patriotism. And here's what I mean. So we arrived in Rapid City and used that as our initial kicking off point. But first of all, that was was very surprising. I didn't know very much about Rapid City. Super fun, a bit alternative of a city where they also totally infuse Native American culture along with reverence for our presidents. And they have in the downtown area on every corner, a statue of a U.S. president, and they call it the City of Presidents. And of course, that's because it's the gateway to Mount Rushmore. That was where the patriotism really hit in. We spent July 4th at Mount Rushmore. We got there late in the day and we stayed because at nine o'clock, there's a ranger presentation. And then at 930, there was the lighting. It was spectacular. And I saw this one ranger before we got to the main event, and she was swearing in young kids, you know, three, four, seven, nine years old as junior rangers. And can I tell you, with each child that she swore in, she took it so seriously. And these kids, you could see on their faces how proud they felt and how excited they were. And they were going to remember that. She took it so seriously 
and really made it something memorable for them. And I was like, man, that's just fantastic. You're building the future. But then at nine o'clock on July 4th, the ranger gives this speech and he was so well-spoken and it's on America and our history and a bit of the history on the creation of Mount Rushmore. They show this amazing film on Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt. And let me say, they don't whitewash everything. I mean, that was another thing that I found really interesting. They don't ignore, it's not like they just gloss over and make everything, you know, how perfect and without any problems America was. They talk about the Native Americans. They talk about slavery. And yet within that, they talk about the ideals of America. And look, that tension, that's just part of the reality. And in my mind, it does not detract or or distract from the point that this incredible country built on this incredible ideal that we try every day to live up to. And some days we do and some days we don't, but that's the shining light. That's the beacon. They did this fantastic job. And so they got the ranger speaking in the film and you're feeling great and there's a big crowd and everyone's excited. And then boom, at 930, the lights come on and they light up the monument. You know, you've seen it before because you're there before sundown. And so you saw it in the daylight, but the lights go on and there was just this energy and everyone starts cheering and you feel incredible. They then called up any veterans from the audience, anyone who had served. And there had to be 2,000, 3,000 people there. So it takes a few minutes and all these veterans walk up. And the ranger then said something. So you have them all in the front and they're lined up and everyone's clapping and cheering for them. And the ranger said something really beautiful. And it wasn't this trite, thank you for your service, which of course we all feel, but I feel like people throw that comment around so insincerely, it feels like at times, and it never should be stated insincerely. But instead of that, he tied their service and connected their love of country all the way back to George Washington. He made it a straight line. And he talked about how, you know, he said to the rest of us, on stage here, are people who have served our country, many of whom who have never met each other, but they are all connected. And this might be the only time in their lives that they get public recognition of their service. Can we recognize them all again? It left me feeling we all saw a couple of years ago when Trump went out to Mount Rushmore. Unfortunately, everything becomes political and the messaging felt to me off because everything just becomes obviously so political. But let me tell you, either party, and I think the ones who have not embraced it sufficiently, needs to take back patriotism. Democrats need to take back patriotism. We should be doing a celebration, we this country, probably with Mount Rushmore as the basis. I know we all do our community events and those are fantastic, but there is something, I felt it there. These rangers did an incredible job and the sense of patriotism, positive sense of patriotism was outstanding. I was a little bit worried. I didn't know if it was going to get into shouting matches of, you know, Trump versus Biden or anything like that. There was none of that. The only cheering that I heard, people started shouting USA, USA. Anyhow. About a 10 or a dozen years ago, we took the family to Turkey and we're in central Turkey. 
I mean, a place like I'd never even imagined existed. It was a place called Cappadocia. And it was unbelievable. All of this volcanic stone and the carvings. And there was a city of over 30,000 people that lived underground back around Roman times. And one of these most amazing things, the type of thing that you need to actually travel to go see. The next vacation that we took as a family was to Utah, where we went to Zion and Bryce Canyon. And I was just as blown away as I was in this magical place in Turkey that I had to travel all around the world to go see. And it was right here in my own country. And it was at that moment that I realized how incredibly special these national parks are. It's like a stamp of approval. If it says national park, it is a really good place to go and you really should take advantage of it. And it sounds like your vacation was exactly the same thing because I've known you a long time, Chris, and uh, I've never heard you talk like that. And so I'm glad it was a great vacation. And I'm also glad that things that you liked when you were 14, you still like today. For sure. I certainly do. And I know that you know one fun fact that I'm very proud of is that I have been in all 48 continental United States. I've not been to Alaska. I've not been to Hawaii, but I've done that. And that's because, and again, I don't know if it's a Midwestern thing that that was you know where I grew up, but driving trips were how I spent a great deal of time getting around. I loved that as a 14-year-old, and I still loved it today. And yeah, just can't wait for the next opportunity to get out there. How about we talk about another president, Chris? Yes. I do not believe he has a statue yet in Rapid City, but according to Axios, he did have a blockbuster week. And of course, we're talking about President Biden, who Axios writes, has notched major victories this week, both at home and abroad, that could shape his legacy and re-election hopes far beyond the partisan squabbles consuming Washington on a daily basis. June's consumer price index shows inflation has dramatically plunged from its peak, suggesting the end of a crisis that dragged down Biden's approval rating and gave Republicans political ammunition for nearly two years. And then it jumped forward. At the NATO summit in Lithuania, Biden booked two other wins, paving the way for Sweden to join the alliance and finding a consensus on new security guarantees for Ukraine. So is that it, Tegan? Is Biden back Can we expect to see his approval ratings shoot through the roof? I wouldn't expect that quite yet, but it is a huge week. And I don't think Axios was overselling it at all. On the inflation thing, the reason why I don't think you'll see it reflected in approval rates that soon is that it's terrific that prices only grew 0.2% last month, annualized year over year at 3%. The reality is, is, and I'm sure you find this when you're in South Dakota or when you're in New York. That every time you go out to a checkout counter, it seems like everything's more expensive than it was or that you remembered that it was. The fact is, is that prices are higher than they have been and we haven't gotten used to that. And so even though they're not rising as quickly as they were and we're getting closer to the Fed's magical 2% target, which is what they're aiming for, the fact is, is that prices are still high. I will say almost every time I buy something new, I'm kind of shocked at what it costs. And most Americans are still feeling that. And so you're not going to see that reflected. But nonetheless, it had to end at some point. And ending more than a year before the election is probably a good thing. And perhaps Biden's approval rates will begin to inch back up sometime in 2024, if not sooner. And then obviously internationally, you know, strengthening NATO, particularly after you've got his predecessor, Donald Trump, 
doing everything he could to stick it to NATO. And you've got various you know, Republicans in Congress, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, trying to pass resolutions to force Biden to exit NATO. All of that is just kind of ridiculous. And instead, what Biden has done, he's probably strengthened the one international organization that has kept Europe at peace for so long, with obviously the glaring exception of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But that's going to make it even harder for Russia at this point. Every time Biden moves to strengthen NATO, the people who are opposed to NATO, who are opposed to supporting Ukraine in this war, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, they get more vocal when these types of things happen. And I think that that contrast between Biden, who's standing up for this international order that has kept us at peace for so long, and these Republicans who are ready to throw it away, I think that that's really important because I think it paints them as very extreme. And so I think the politics of this really just play to Biden's overall strategy, which is to paint Republicans as MAGA Republicans, as he says. But what that really means is just very, very extreme and outside of the mainstream of America, whether it's funding for Ukraine or whether it's abortion rights or any other issue, really. That's what he's been trying to do. And so, yeah, this helps. And where does Tommy Tuberville and what's going on with the military assignments, where does that fit into all this? He's another example of an extreme. I mean, this is the type of thing, military promotions that he is holding up right now. It's never been the type of thing that would be held hostage due to politics. Obviously, the servicemen and women who are to be promoted do not have any ability to change the social policies, and in this case, abortion policy, that Tuberville's looking to change in the, around the U.S. military. So I think it paints him as extreme. I think he's also beginning to wear out his welcome. I think that you're beginning to see some of his Republican colleagues worried that this hold that he's placed on these nominations is going to start causing real national security problems. You've got the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, came out this week saying that it really was a national security concern in that anyone one on the Armed Services Committee in the Senate knows that. And so it's beginning to cause a rift, I think, within the Republican caucus. And once again, let's get back to politics. When it comes to rifts, it's the divided side that typically loses these fights. And so a rift on the Republican side is really just an advantage to the Democrats and to Joe Biden. You raised Marjorie Taylor Greene and her comments. I mean, she is full on U.S. get out of NATO. Yet McCarthy continues to support her. Wasn't his quote something like, she's a model representative or she's exactly the type of person that a U.S. representative should be? I hear you on the Tuberville point. Are the splits on the Republican side that we've been talking about over the last several weeks, are those just getting deeper? I do think they're getting deeper. I do think that the far right of the Republican Party is moving even further right. And so that causes someone like Speaker McCarthy, much more agony trying to pull his caucus together. But, you know, as we record this, Chris, Joe Biden is standing in front of microphones with Finland's president talking about some of the achievements that they made at this NATO summit. Happens to be the 50th anniversary of when Donald Trump stood in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin and we all remember how that went, where Donald Trump really acted very subservient to Vladimir Putin. Think of what has changed over the course of the last five years since that moment. It is not a mistake, in my view, that Joe Biden decided to end his European trip with a stop in Helsinki, in the same room as Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump had that memorable incident. That is not a mistake. And Joe Biden is using every single one of these events to his advantage to show the fact that the Republican Party is very extreme and is only growing more extreme. 
I know that in addition to baseball, French fries, and ice cream, you also happen to love political theater. So I'm not surprised that you picked up on and really enjoyed the fact that he's doing that. Can we talk about another split and another great Midwestern state? And that's Iowa. What is going on? I hope that you'll be able to explain it. With Trump and Iowa, the headline, this one also from Axios this week, Trump blasts Iowa's GOP governor for staying neutral in 2024. Former President Trump criticized Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds on Monday for not endorsing in the crowded Republican primary. Reynolds has committed to staying neutral, a move that is in line with previous governors of the First and Nation caucuses, but it's sparked frustration from the former president. Trump posted that he, quote, opened up the governor position for Kim Reynolds, and when she fell behind, I endorsed her, all caps endorsed, because why wouldn't you put that in all caps, did big rallies, and she won. Now she wants to remain neutral. I don't invite her to events. De sanctus down 45 points, Trump wrote. And Trump endorsed Reynolds, of course, in 2018, when she nearly won a full term with 50.3% of the vote. But she then won 58.1% of the vote in 2022. And I think I've seen stats where she has a positive rating in Iowa of like 90%. And so my question for you is, Trump is now going after Kim Reynolds. He won't show up at various events in Iowa, including tomorrow's Family Leadership Summit, but he is doing a pre-taped town hall with Sean Hannity on Tuesday in Cedar Rapids. What's going on with Trump and Iowa? Well, it's interesting. Obviously, Trump senses that Governor Reynolds is not going to endorse him and that this idea that she's remaining neutral, he doesn't buy it. It's probably right. She has appeared at at least three events with Ron DeSantis. She's appeared at another event with Casey DeSantis, the governor's wife. Trump does not want to be at one of these events at this point. He may not even show up for the first debate. He doesn't want to be at these events with these other candidates because he does have a significant lead. Trump claims it's 45 points in Iowa. When you look at the Real Clear Politics polling average, the average right now has Trump ahead by 24 points. That's made up of three interesting polls, though. So I would take this with a grain of salt. You've got American Greatness, which is a MAGA publication that has Trump up by 23. You've got Emerson College, which has Trump up by 42 points. And then you've got Signal, which has Trump up by seven. So the average is 24, but obviously it's pretty much all over the place. Obviously, polling a caucus, as we've found over the years, is next to impossible. It is extremely hard to figure out where somebody is in a field that, particularly one that is just emerging, like this Republican field is. So is Trump ahead? It sure seems like he's ahead, but who knows by how much. Nonetheless, Ron DeSantis knows that he needs to beat Trump in Iowa. He needs to beat Trump in New Hampshire to really have a chance. And Donald Trump is sensing that Iowa is not in the bag for him. So you know, he got beat there before by Ted Cruz. He's not sure where he stands. And so as Donald Trump does, when he senses that there's a potential weakness, he begins to deny things, whether it's the election results or what reality is in, in Iowa. But there's one other thing that's going on in Iowa that I also find interesting is that Ron DeSantis may think he's in trouble in Iowa. So Ron DeSantis is already looking ahead, according to Associated Press story this week, he's already looking ahead to the 14 Super Tuesday states, and he's starting to spend real money in those states. That's because he's been trailing nationally against Trump among Republicans. He's trailing in, in Iowa, as we talked about. He's trailing in New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada. He's even getting beat by Trump in Florida, his home state. 
So DeSantis is kind of, you know, taking a cue from the Rudy Giuliani playbook, so to speak, and he's skipping ahead and seeing if he can actually make a play in these Super Tuesday states. So what it says to me, when you look at what DeSantis is doing, when you look at what Trump is doing, it looks to me like Iowa could be won by neither of them. I could see a guy like Tim Scott suddenly emerge as a victor in Iowa. As anybody who has followed presidential campaigns over the year knows, that gives a pretty good boost as you head into some of these other states. One of those other early states is Tim Scott's home state of South Carolina, where he trails right now. But if he were to defeat Trump in Iowa, maybe all of a sudden South Carolina is in play for Tim Scott. Who knows? Maybe even New Hampshire is in play. But Iowa is definitely going to be a competitive state for Republicans. So it's definitely one to watch. It's interesting to watch the two supposed front runners taking pretty defensive positions right now when it comes to Iowa. Two thoughts that come to my mind. One is DeSantis taking a page, as you just stated, out of Giuliani's playbook by ramping up the Super Tuesday approach. As mentioned, Tegan, I was just in Rapid City, and I might have missed the statue of President Giuliani, but I don't don't recall. There might be one in his house. He might have one one in his house, but I think that might be the only one. uh, There's probably a couple in his house, so I don't know if that's the playbook I would want to reach for. And the other statue, of course, when you're talking about winning Iowa and, and the ability to use that going forward, I just can't help but think about President Howard Dean. He won Iowa, right? You know, as you say it, the only thing I can remember about that 2004 campaign is is Howard Dean yelling. uh, That's sad. I know. That's all I remember, too. So it's um, terrible. Unfortunately, that was Governor Dean's legacy in Iowa, was that Uh, that viral clip. Objectively, that makes you and me bad people, that that's what we remember, because (laughs) it's just, that's terrible. I mean, the guy got it. He was excited. Poor guy. Well, the point, though, is the point is a good one. Just as Ted Cruz found out by winning Iowa back in 2016, or that Joe Biden found out back in 2020, you don't need to win Iowa in order to get your party's nomination. So a lot is made of Iowa. The Democrats are obviously trying to downplay Iowa on their primary calendar. The idea of these caucuses, these caucuses have not really run well in the last several cycles. Iowa is not the most important thing in the world. And that's probably part of Donald Trump's equation as well. He knows that Iowa is probably not that important in the bigger scheme of things and that some of these candidates won't be able to compete in states past Iowa because they will run out of money. But his same rationale for this debate coming up in August is Donald Trump may not need that debate, may not need to show up at that debate in order to win the nomination. So why put yourself in a place where it could hurt you and not really help you? Have you gotten your gift card yet from North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum? I'm telling you, it does make a lot of sense. Put your $1 donation down, get 20 back. I haven't gotten that good a return on my money in a long time. So August 23rd, we'll be talking about that over the next couple of weeks. That's the first GOP debate. Chris Christie says he's got the 40,000 votes to show up and get on stage. Does that encourage Trump to show up or will he potentially stay away? Will it look like Trump is running from Chris Christie if he doesn't show up? No, I mean, you'll remember back in 2016, Trump didn't show up as well to a debate and it really didn't hurt him one bit. He didn't think it was fair. This first debate being hosted by Fox News, you know, Trump has gone on record many times over the last few months saying Fox News is not fair to him anymore. He senses the network does not want him to win the nomination and that Rupert Murdoch, who controls the network, 
doesn't want him to win the nomination. So I don't think whether Chris Christie gets the 40,000 individual donors that he needs, or I guess the other ones that have surpassed that right now, DeSantis has, Nikki Haley has, I think Tim Scott has as well. But you know whether Chris Christie's there or not, or whether Tim Scott's there, I don't think Donald Trump makes any decision based on that. I think Trump may just assume that it's an August primary. And if Trump doesn't show up, is it really a debate? It may not be a debate, but it certainly will be an event. Tegan, I'm going to leave you now. It's time to go take back patriotism. Good to see you back at your post, Chris. Talk to you next week.